Good morning, everyone. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, um, we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed. Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any air that I may speak and open our hearts and minds to the truth that you have for us. Lord, as we um, contemplate what it is to love, what it is to be the people of love, in a world that is not defined by love. As we continue to ponder John's letter, his first letter of John, that is so simple and yet so complex in many ways. Father, I ask that you would impress upon our hearts what this disciple is teaching us. What this man in his old age who learned at the feet of Jesus and by this time has had so many years to digest what it means to be a follower of Jesus, who has seen so much persecution, who has endured much, who has seen the church rise and has seen failures, who has seen all of his brother disciples die or go off into distant lands. Now is likely the last of them all. He has much wisdom to impart. And yet he does it in such a simple way that it's easy for us to blow this letter off. It's not as complex as Hebrews or Paul. It's not as interesting oftentimes as the Old Testament letters. He repeats himself. And yet he does so for a reason. Father, I ask that you would help us to chew on this passage, to chew on this letter, to meditate on it, to let it sink in deep, and to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 2012, Vice President in the vice presidential debate, Moderator Chris Matthews went after candidate, their then-candidate, Paul Ryan, for his pro-life stance. That was a position held by and still held by Christians all over the country and really all over the world. But when he went after him, he said this position was extremist and almost Sharia. Now recently, an author and freelance journalist, Feminista Jones, who has contributed to outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Salon and Box, said this, it's always funny to me when Christians pretend their religion is somehow less oppressive of women than Islam, laughing my bleep off. Duke University theology professor Curtis Freeman is the director of the school's Baptist House of Studies. And he's written for outlets like the Raleigh News Observer and the Houston Chronicle as the American conservative reported in March, he claimed, evangelical Christianity is the greatest threat to human existence today. It must be laid to waste. Think about that for a second. And journalist Joy Reid, responding to a report on the persecution of women under the Taliban, responded by comparing the Taliban to American evangelicals. 
This is the real-life handmaid's tale, a true cautionary tale for the U.S., which has our own far religious right dreaming of theocracy that would impose a particular brand of Christianity to drive women from the workforce and solely into childbirth and to control all politics, Reed tweeted. Now these last few weeks, if you've been paying attention on the news, have seen journalists use this kind of rhetoric all over the place. Christians are being compared to the American Taliban. We're called dangerous. We're called insurrectionists. We're called violent. We're called extremists. We are being set up for something. And it is very troubling. Why are we being attacked like this, you might ask? Now, we're being attacked unless, of course, they agree with us. In any areas where Christians will agree with them, then we are called heroes, which has encouraged many to rush to try to agree with those who throw the accusations. And I've seen clergy all over, including in our own denomination, rush to try to agree with some of those attacking them, rush to do anything they can to try to um, agree with them and attack our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is not the first time opponents of Christianity have tried to paint us as hate mongers or murderers. In fact, the Romans, who were as bloodthirsty as any people who have ever existed, painted Christians as murderers and drinking as as drinking excuse me we were thought of as drinking blood because of our practice of communion they thought we actually sacrificed people slit them open and drank their blood which was ironic for a people who ran the gladiatorial games that they thought we were bloodthirsty if you know anything about the circus maximus at one point the romans had killed so many animals and so many people that the Circus Maximus, which was about a mile in circumference, right? A mile in diameter. They had so much blood that it was ankle deep in blood. And yet they called us bloodthirsty. Throughout the centuries and throughout the world today, Christians have been labeled as enemies of the state. Look at it in China. Look in Pakistan. Look in Saudi Arabia. Look throughout the Middle East. We've been called disloyal, unfaithful, murderous, slanderous, weak, ignorant, evil, lazy. We've been called atheists for not believing in multiple gods. Can you believe that? We've been called foolish for believing in God. Whatever the charge, the reason is always the same. We are scapegoated for not believing as those who charge us want us to believe. And that is a thing that simply cannot be tolerated. And it doesn't hurt that we tend to be a relatively easy group to persecute. Of all the other groups to persecute, we're the easiest. Why? I've even heard people on television, on the very news stations that are attacking us, say, why? Why do they attack Christians? And I've heard them respond, because they won't fight back. They're an easy target, a soft target. Muslims and other groups will fight back and kill us, and so we don't dare attack them. So why won't we fight back? Because one of the central tenets of our faith, one on which we will focus this morning, love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, all throughout this letter, when John has been using love, he's not been using philia, as he does oftentimes in his gospel. He interchanges philia and agape. So when he says here, God is love, or theos is love, he says theos is agape. Agape here, then, is unconditional love. And so he's saying God is this agape, unconditional love. He loves in an unconditional manner. So it's different from some of the other types of love, and we've looked at that. We've looked at storge, we've looked at eros, we've looked at some of the other types of love. And if you have unconditional love here, he says, then you are born of God. And if you don't, you aren't. And this is at the core, John says, of what it means to be a Christian. You have it, you're probably a Christian. You don't have it, you definitely aren't a Christian. We just discussed this in our Bible study on Thursday. A lot of Christians get hung up on what does it mean to be a Christian. They get hung up on this particular verse, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Jesus says. Now, I'm not exactly sure why they get hung up on this verse, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, except that we as Christians love to cherry-pick particular verses. When I was in seminary, uh, my professor would make us memorize huge, huge chunks of Scripture for extra credit. He wouldn't let us memorize just little passages. He called these little verses Sunday school verses. And he would always rip us. It was our Pauline professor. He had studied the Bible uh, for 45 years. Uh, he would never let us get away with Sunday school verses. And he would tease us in class if we ever brought up a Sunday school verse, right? He said, that's fine for children, but you all are grown adults and you're going to be pastors. Do not memorize these one little verses, one little verse and throw it out at me as if that summarizes the entirety of scripture. It does not stop acting like a child. And so we would memorize these massive sections of scripture and you would learn the theology behind it. And this one little verse does not capture all of John 14. In fact, if you look at John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about a great many things, and this obedience thing really comes in, it's just one little verse in the midst of an entire chapter. But for rules followers, this is a really intriguing passage. And so I know if I ask you who here is a rules follower, many of you will raise your hands. And so rules followers will really gravitate towards this particular verse, right? We want to obey. We like obedience, and if you are a rules follower, you want to have a little bit of a checklist. But rule following is not the core of the Christian faith, except for, you know, rules followers. But they often struggle to understand the core of the faith because they are, you know, rules followers. But you see, even in John 14, 15, Jesus states the core of the faith is what? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the commandments are not actually a checklist of things to do. There are some things that we need to do that are good and bad, but really the core of the things that Jesus talks about are these internal changes, these transitions that we need to do. 
There are some things, some behaviors, yes, that we need to do, right? Commandments is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us a lot of checklists of things to do, but the New Testament surprisingly doesn't. It talks about loving your neighbor as yourself and then begins to talk in depth about those kinds of behaviors. It's a transitional thing that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. But the core of the faith, then, is love, which is talked about, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, of course, hope, right? Oh, wait, did I get that wrong? What does it say? The greatest of these is love. Now, this, by the way, is the difference between Christianity and Islam. I just had someone try to tell me the other day that all religions are the same, which, as a person who studied religions in college, is another thing that gets me to roll my eyes, because that's the first mark of somebody who doesn't know anything about all religions. Anyone who tells you that all religions are the same is a person who doesn't know anything about any religion. Because it, the first time you know, if, if you've studied all religions, then you know that they are all different. And they are vastly different, okay? They are vastly different, as anybody who's studied religions will tell you. And one of the big differences between Islam and Christianity is that in Islam, God is just. He is not loving. In Islam, God is wholly other. He is entirely transcendent or above us. God is distant, okay? He is not with us. He would never love us enough to become one of us and sacrifice himself for our sins. The entire fact that Jesus died on a cross is offensive to Islam. In fact, what they say is when Jesus was on a cross, a Muslim man ran over and sacrificed himself in place. That's often commonly said in their lore. But Jesus, of course, was never God. He was simply a prophet because God would never do the things that Jesus did. And so in Islam, one hopes to accomplish enough good deeds to become good enough for Allah, the just. And you do it through legalistic acts. You have a checklist. And so a uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who was Muslim, when he was in a moment of, of honesty with me, said, Jeff, I always worry that I've not done enough to make it to heaven. I've just not been good enough. And so that's basically what you're doing in Islam. You have these just acts. Modern progressivism, which is what we're facing in our culture, is also legalistic in this way. No one can ever really atone for a sin as there's not really a sacrificial system. Well, I mean, you could say abortion and euthanasia, but there's, that's really kind of sacrificing to their God, right? But you are currently either favored or unf in an unfavored group. You're either in a favored group or an unfavored group, but you gain credit through your behaviors or your beliefs. So in this way, it's really kind of similar to Islam, but one key difference from that in Islam is you're born into a particular race or sex or color or power structure, and there is no way out. You're a sinner, and you can't really make up for it. You can try through radical behaviors or tearing yourself down or tearing others down to make up for it, but you can't really get there. The goalposts are always going to move because you're always trying to please a group of people who are just making it up out of whole cloth, right? They've written books, they're making it up. And the goalposts will always change because they're always making it up. Why? Because they make money by making it up, 
They stay in power by making it up. This is what they do. It's what they do for a living. They could do it for pleasure also. They can do it for fame. And even if you could make them happy, even if you could be impressive in their eyes, a question I would have for you is why would you want to? What is so important about being impressive in their eyes? So in Christianity, however, our view is radically different. Where does our view come from? Well, 1 John 4, 8 says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the famous passage where we get God is love. And, and a lot of times this was misused in the 70s, which would try to say, well, hey, man, God is love. Love is God. Well, that, that's not the same thing. Love is not God. God is love. Right? This is a, there's, there's a little bit of a difference here, Right? In the 70s, it got twisted around. Love is God, and then they would try to say, well, making love is God, or any kind of affection is God. No, that's not true. God is love. And what I try to tell people is this. God is a simple being. You are a complex being. You say, what? God's very complex. We can't understand him. No. God is not made up of anything. He is. You are made up of things. You're complex. God is what he is. So God is the source of love. He is the source of justice. He is the source of holiness. All those things are defined in him. And so if you want to know true justice, you know God. If you want to know true holiness, you know God. If you want to know true love, you know God. So God is love. Love is not God, and that's what John is saying here, okay? So God is love, and he is just as in, as in Islam, but he is also love, which he is not there. It's agape. He's unconditionally loving. And this is a powerful statement and a powerful difference between our faith and any other religion, really. And how loving? How loving is he? Well, the difference is shown in Jesus, and that's what 4, 9, and 10 is telling us. In this, the love of God was made manifest or displayed among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who knows what propitiation means? Complex word. Propitiation. Means... Substitute, what'd you say? Substitution? What'd you say, David? Substitution, right? Propitiation. The removal of wrath through the offering of a gift, or in this case, through Jesus' blood. The removal of wrath through the offering of a gift, in this case, through Jesus' blood. This is a good way to say it. Substitutionary. So Jesus offers himself in our place. He is the propitiation for our sins. Fancy word, need to learn it, propitiation for our sins. So when we come to faith then, we're united with Jesus and we live through him. And so this is another difference between Islam and Christianity in that Jesus now comes among us. Jesus is God with us. What does that mean? He's now imminent. He's with us. He's not wholly other. He's not out there. 
God is now with you. No other religion has God. So other religions, either God is so with us, he's indistinguishable, so we're just all gods. But he's not other. Or he's other, like in Islam, and he's never with us, so we can't really know God. Allah is indiscernible. But in our faith, what we have seen is God is the creator and he's above, but he also, through his son, came to be with us which means now through Christ in you via the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit, you now have access to the Father. And that's a pretty powerful thing when you think about it. The love of Christ was made real to us through his sacrifice, and that is the model of love that we have. But because of that model, we need to live into this love. It's supposed to be transformative, and that's how we are supposed to live. We are supposed to model this kind of love. And for this reason, because of this, we're going to be different than both other groups. We are not our own gods, as progressivism says, and God is not wholly other, as Islam says. And that's why both groups find us distasteful. We preach a gospel that is thoroughly offensive to them. It's a gospel that contradicts what they are selling. And so like many other world systems and religions, they'll choose to highly regulate or eliminate Christians. That's why Christians get killed in Afghanistan. That's why Christians get persecuted and killed in Pakistan. That's why they get persecuted oftentimes and killed in Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Libya. That's why they get killed in much of the world. That's why they've been killed in China. That's why they've been killed in Vietnam. That's why they've been killed all over the world. And that's why we're starting to see Christians called the American Taliban and such aggressive names by progressivism in our country. Why? We're in the way. We teach a gospel that is highly offensive to them. Why? We're told this in Scripture. You either serve God or you serve the world. And if you serve the world or the kingdom of this world, you are going to necessarily hate Christ. You just will. And you're going to hate those who serve Jesus. We should expect this. Why? Because the gospel is offensive to those who are in the world. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma or the smell of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing or going to hell. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So if you think you're going to compromise with those attacking your faith and make yourself acceptable to them, think again. You never will until you give up your faith. It's, not, it's because they're not really angry at you. They're angry at Jesus Christ within you. And their attacks upon the church, the Christian baker, the photographer, the protester of abortions, the local pastor, the Christian counselor, or whoever the news or your teacher or your professor or whoever chooses to pick, or whoever they choose to pick on this week is going after. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the person they're picking on. It has everything to do with the faith. They're slaves to the world, and they're slaves to the power of sin, and we are servants to the king and the power of light. And we need to remember that we are the people of love even when we're getting persecuted. 
even when we're getting attacked. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves. It doesn't mean we can't stand up for ourselves. It doesn't mean that we can't stand up for ourselves to our bosses. It doesn't mean that we need to bow our heads and just take it and be silent. We should speak up. We should stand up when our brothers or sisters are attacked. We shouldn't cower in fear. We are not to be people of fear. But we do need to remember that our love needs to extend to our brothers and sisters under the harsh spotlight being attacked. And we are not to join in with the pagans who are attacking them just to make ourselves look good to people who are never going to love us anyway. But more than that, we need to understand just what John and Jesus are speaking about. The core of our faith is the love of Jesus. And this is the love which we are to display in our lives towards one another and towards the world. It's to be characteristic of who we are. And so that means on our Facebook pages and our Twitter accounts and in our behavior and our speech, we're to be characterized by love and not vitriol. By the love of Christ and not hatred. It's to be seasoned with salt that will draw people to Jesus and not to drive them away from the cross. None of us are going to do this faith thing or this love thing perfectly or even close to perfectly, and I'll end with this, but we need to stop focusing on how imperfectly other believers are doing it, as if we would do it any better. The truth is, many believers do this love thing pretty well. We just don't take time to notice. We often take time to notice the imperfections in others, not the good in others. We live in a cynical culture that loves to point out failure instead of successes. And there are lots and lots of Christians out there who are doing some pretty wonderful things. You're never going to hear about them in the news. But all every day, they're doing some pretty special things. But our primary call is not to focus on people failing. Our primary call is to begin practicing this love in our own lives and teaching other believers how to live into this love themselves and calling the rest of the world to the love of Jesus, spreading it and sharing it. Amen.